What if you were Google Search's therapist? You would be tasked with understanding the mind of Google Search algorithm, simultaneously seeking to understand the Google mind and trying to help it make better decisions about the world it manipulates. This, as it turns out, is the job of the Search Engine Optimizer, or SEO. Maybe we should call them SETs, Search Engine Therapists. For they must not only understand the search algorithm, but they must also be able to help it make better decisions. And they must do this with the active resistance of Google. Like humans, Google secretly does not want to be helped. Our intrepid SETs will never have a complete understanding of the Google search mind. So we're stuck with a simple mantra. Take the best search traffic we can get and let the website sort it out. I'm the guy that focuses on sorting out the traffic. Making a website better at finding the buyers in your traffic is called conversion optimization or CRO. Here lies the delicate balance between making the search mind better at its job, SEO, and making the most of what comes your way, CRO. Google is a cantankerous patient who makes the therapist pay for the privilege of helping it. We need to use all of our weapons to maximize this traffic source. This is why I invited Jason Fisher onto Intended Consequences. He is a search therapist who gets that the sorting out part of the equation is important. Welcome to Intended Consequences, a podcast from Conversion Sciences. I'm Brian Massey, and I believe that anyone is capable of using behavioral science to get the results their business needs. It delivers intended consequences, and I'll teach you how to harness it. Jason, welcome to Intended Consequences. Glad to be here, Brian. Thank you. Um, I thought it would be interesting for us to talk because you are an SEO, which is, uh, to me, it's it's voodoo. You're trying to understand the mind of a obfuscated and hidden brain, the Google and the Bing brains, and figure out what it is they're trying to ascertain about a website in order to give it authority, credibility, and most importantly, rank for certain terms. But you also get conversion optimization. So as always on Intended Consequences, uh, we usually start off with understanding your path to where you are. Can you talk a little bit about your influences and experiences that brought you to this particular place? Uh, I started out doing tech support for a fast growing web hosting company back in around 1999. Uh, and by the very end of 2000, 2001, they asked me to start managing some Google PPC campaigns. And mm -hmm. an organic campaign for them as well, and which back then, you know, consisted of cutting a check for three hundred dollars for a for a, a Yahoo Business Directory listing. You know, that oh. was back in the day when it was the the Wild West in search marketing, and you could just buy the domain aaaplumbing.com to rank at the very top of the SERP. Um, from there, I went on to lead the uh, Sprint Elite Wireless Program for a mobile solutions company that was out out of Columbus, Ohio. Then from there, I spent six years serving as the director of technology for uh, uh, Integrated Mobile. After that company was acquired 
they didn't need two CD CTOs. So they asked me to help migrate their call center knock and then kindly asked me to leave. You know, gave me a $50 gift certificate and said, thanks for the effort. You know, after that, a good friend of mine who is just an incredibly brilliant serial entrepreneur asked me to come do some contract work for his link development company, which was the best link, you know, building product in the world. Um, that's where I kind of learned this the incredible power of backlinks and search marketing and how, mm -hmm. how to technically evaluate differences in competitor link graphs. So when I saw the crazy power of search marketing and what it was doing for all these different businesses, uh, I knew it was my future. So I decided to start uh, Jay Fisher Consulting and do nothing but technical SEO consulting for digital agencies. And the more, the more SEOs I met and the more agency you know, work I started doing, the more I realized how big the SEO skill gap was within agencies and how big the need really was. So where is link building in terms of the technical SEO tool set now that you're bringing to agencies? Well, the link building, or as we like to say, link development, what drives it is the content marketing, right? Because you're trying to produce assets that have value, things that attract links. You're trying to earn links. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, it's more traditional PR, really. Link building really is more tra like traditional PR. You're, you're taking content that has value and resources that are useful to people, and you're reaching out to publishers and other entities to say, hey, I have this great asset. Check this out. You could use this. You know, you're, you, you talk about this online as a publisher. You could use this asset. So link to me. It's really PR. It does seem like PR. Now, I get four or five solicitations a day because I, <laughs> I delete all of those. How many people are actually responding to those link building? Is it, a, is it 1%? Is it 10%? Does it depend? Very few. 1%. So it takes a yeah. lot of work to identify a bunch of places where your content might be of interest, uh, invite those folks to share that content in some way with their audience. Yeah, um, you know, a, a lot of .edus and .orgs, you know, they have these special resources pages, you know, hidden in their information architecture about certain things like for, a, let's say, a, a college. They want to have a list of resources for a particular type of student. Um, and so those are really unique, interesting opportunities for link building because you can build this asset and then reach out to them. And a lot of the times they're way more receptive than I ever thought they would be. Well, when people come to me, a lot of, we do consultations with folks that aren't yet ready for conversion optimization. Um, they're looking to me for advice. And my advice almost always is whatever you do, start your search optimization process now. It's long lead time, kind of like CRO is it, it builds over time and, you know, use your budget, whatever you can to use ads to bring people in. Is that a fair synopsis of how uh, someone who is launching a new site or launching a new product should go about their digital marketing? Yeah, I, I would say, yeah, if you, if you need quick revenue, PPC is kind of hard to beat because of how quickly you can spin it up. Versus an organic operation where, you know, an organic campaign is going to take us 12 to 24 months to get really powerful. And of the tools, so you mentioned content, we mentioned link building, which relies on good contents, content that's good enough that you can sell to someone that might want to add it to their site or add it to one of their posts. And then how would you break out the broad components of SEO in terms of the amount of effort you would put into it? Well, I would say, you know... Initially, especially if you have a site of size, if you're an e-commerce site with high page depth, um, we'd always want to start with a technical audit where we basically identify and remediate all the accessibility, indexability, and on and off page success factors. Say more about that last one. 
the, the on and off page success factors are essentially, um, you know, the, the elements that the search engines look at that impact ranking. So that would be your link graph. So these are the backlinks. So the quantity and quality okay. of the backlinks pointing to your pages. Uh, on the on-page side, you have things like your SEO meta, like your page titles, your internal linking, internal external linking, these types of elements. Yeah. So this is top-down optimization of a page. And how much how much uh, weight should we put in the performance of your host? That would be on-page, your, your load performance. It's a light ranking factor, so not, not a big deal, but it's something nonetheless, It's there's a thousand things we need to do right, and uh, that's one of them. Um, you know, if we have a good tech stack, we're going to be where we need to be performance-wise. In mid-July, all of our mobile pages went red. Uh, does that happen often? Yeah, there there are, a, you know, they're doing pushing out broad core updates basically on a quarterly basis. So that can introduce volatility into your rankings and visibility that you have to watch for. And usually nowadays, when you're seeing a negative impact from that, it's going to be because there's some type of quality issue. And in many cases, I find it's a quality issue. In other cases, they're really, we've looked and there isn't an issue. It's just that Google is assessing things uh, differently. And they've decided that in some cases, there's a competitor who they like better. Oh, really? Um, yeah. So, you know, sometimes we do full audits after we have, you know, losses in traffic uh, after core updates. And there really isn't anything really to fix. And that's a hard message to share with a client. You know, sometimes there's there's changes that happen with how Google looks at what the intent is of a search. So you'll be ranking for a query, but Google's understanding of the true user intent behind that query becomes different after the update. So then they go, well, this company shouldn't be ranking for this because this intent is this. So you have these types of very nuanced changes that are very difficult to, to analyze uh, and to track that happen. Um, and it's very difficult for clients to parse for obvious reasons. You know, we've talked about some of kind of the, the baseline things about SEO. What is something that would surprise us that is maybe something that we're not paying attention to that we should be paying attention to? Well, I think, you know, a lot of the, you know, medium to larger size um, e-commerce sites that I run into, if the first question I always ask when I'm talking to a client or looking at these new sites is, is this site over-indexed or is it under-indexed? Do we have more content in the, the search engine indices than we should? Or do we not have enough content out there and that we should, that should be indexed? And that's a very critical question that I don't feel like most of the in-house marketing management understands. You know, there, there's there's some scenarios where a site will have a high volume of low quality, no searcher value content in the search engine indices. And this is kind of like a poor quality signal. So think, think of Google looking at your site holistically and going 30% of these pages have no traffic. There's very little content on them. There's a lot of URL-based duplicate content, no searcher value. Then they're looking at another competitor and they're going, well, they all, everything they have indexed is getting traffic. It's getting links. It's being shared socially. You know, there's popularity signals to it. There's this really big picture understanding that's very important that especially with a site with a lot of page depth. We need to know and understand, are we over-indexed or are we under-indexed? It's a beautiful, simple question to ask when you start an engagement with a client mm -hmm. because no one knows the answer and we need to know the answer if we're going to be successful in the organic channel. I can see how it would be scary for you to say, like, we're going to take 30% of your pages and we're going to mark them as no index. And is that the, the sort of strategy we're talking about? 
Yeah, they'll look at you like you're crazy. And it's, mm-hmm. it's always a, a very interesting conversation because I say, okay, well, let's do a value assessment. I'm going to look at how much traffic, and this is, you know, an actual deliverable, right? We're, we're, we're doing the value assessment, documenting it and saying, here's all these URLs that are indexed that are, have no search or value. They have no traffic. They have no backlinks. So we're doing basically an equity assessment, right? What value, is there any value to this? Is it serving any purpose? And when you actually look at the content and go, okay, well, maybe it's being used internal linking, like it's a resource that's being referenced or something like this. If it doesn't even have that value, we have to ask ourselves, why is it in the index? What does it say about us? What is it doing for us? What value is it adding? In a lot of the cases you can... We'll go through and we'll find stuff, you know, the blog post from 2005 about, uh, uh, you know, Thanksgiving dinners at the co- company. And it takes more crawl allotment because the machines still have to crawl these. And, and they don't, they don't want to waste time and resources on crawling pages that don't have value, mm-hmm. that, that aren't popular and being used. So there's this, it's very important that we understand the, the, the makeup of what we have in the index. And we audit and we identify what has value and what doesn't. And we can do some pruning and do some cleaning up and getting all this stuff that doesn't have any value, that's using up our crawl allotment. It's not driving traffic. It's just not adding value. Um, So let's get it out of the index so that our new page that we're creating that is important to us about a new product, we get it crawled and it doesn't get um, ignored. I assume that for certain posts, you can consolidate them, make them more valuable and relaunch the content if it's, you know, evergreen content. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, then that's really good stuff. That's worth the effort. You know, you find something where you got some traction historically, had some traffic um, and up and update it, always update that evergreen content and make it fresh um, and, and constantly be looking for ways to improve the quality. You know, maybe you have one that's really great that, you know, is a video. Well, transcribe the video and optimize that blog post with the transcription content. Um, Or maybe it's just a straight text and you have some new photos uh, and maybe a table, some additional assets, digital assets to kind of improve the page quality. How do you configure for content development? Well, the most important thing is to do that, you know, get that initial run of that uh, comprehensive keyword research and analysis where we build that keyword, the content mapping, that blueprint that says, here are all the top keyword opportunities in my space. And here are, uh, the, the blueprint basically says, we have existing landing pages for all of these keyword groups, but we don't have pages for these other keyword groups. And you kind of segment that in two different kinds of traffic. We look at it through user intent. So I like to say, okay, well, what are all the keyword groups that have transactional user intent? These are commercial queries. This is buying traffic. We'll map the keyword groups to the existing landing pages and say, okay, the directive says we need to opt up better optimize these existing landing pages. And then there's in the other directive in the report that says, well, these pages don't exist. We don't have any representation for these keyword groups and it's commercial queries. The directive is we need to build and optimize new pages to satisfy those content gaps. And then on the other side, we have all this keyword opportunities that we find from the research that are informational in nature. These are people asking questions about our products or looking for resources or problems that they have. And the directive there is, you know, we need to build blog posts to f- satisfy those content gaps. And it's a great way for us, an opportunity for, for the company to kind of prove to the machines that we're an authority in our space. 
-hmm. if people are going somewhere to get answers to some of these questions around our product, well, why don't we, why wouldn't we want them going to our, to our domain? When, when everyone comes to our site to get answers to questions that are relevant to my business, my service, my product, we're showing the machines by all of the engagement and popularity and that dwell time on those pages that we're, we're the real deal. We're an authority in our space. You know, We have trust with, our, with those users. So I think that's very powerful and very important. You know, And a lot of times you'll have a client who be like, well, I don't like any of these, these, these keyword groups, any of these topics. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a plumber and... I don't want any DIY content on my website. I want them to subscribe to my service. I want them to send, you know, to pay me money. Well, the guy who's going to do DIY is going to do DIY. It's it's always a fun conversation with clients when you kind of review that that blueprint for that editorial calendar. That's you know very data driven, but it's very important for businesses to take that seriously because we've seen tremendous amounts of success in clients who have committed to that plan. Um, it's been very powerful. Will you take on a client that doesn't have content resources or will you bring those content resources? It all depends on the space. You know, if you're a, what Google would call your money or your life. So let's say you're a surgeon, you know, that's very difficult to spend up content um, because you really, truly need a subject matter expert. It, and out of that keyword research, we also get the information architecture modeling. You know, we like to build models of what the information architecture should be like, um, where, where the, the data from the keyword research effort informs what the information architecture should look like. You know, how are they nested in the menu? And, I, you know, I can give you an example of kind of, we had a client, it was that they were in the durable medical equipment space. You know, they're doing 100,000 users a month. Uh, we ran this kind of comprehensive keyword research effort for them. And we identified, I want to say, you know, a dozen product page gaps and maybe another 40 content gaps for blog post content. And we found something very interesting. A lot of the times when we do this research, we don't just learn what people are searching for. We learn how they shop. We learn like what questions they have, what problems they're experiencing with the product. It's extraordinarily insightful. And in this particular you know, effort, you know, we found that users weren't shopping, querying for the product as much as they were shopping by the brand of the products and by the insurance coverage of the product, which was very eye-opening. Because then you go, okay, well, our site doesn't facilitate that. So we know our UX is way off on the front end of the website, right? The, the user experience is nowhere close to what the data is telling us it needs to be. I built a new IA model that allows users in the menu to shop by product, shop by brand, shop by insurance. I think the transactional opportunity in that project was like 250,000 searches a month. We built out all of the, the new pages that required that the IA called for, you know, and wrote and optimized all the complimentary blog post content as well. But we ended up doing 130, 140% lift in new users, another 130% lift in transactions and revenue was almost 400% increase. So we moved e-commerce revenue into the seven digits just by running the research, understanding what the data is saying, building the information architectural model based on the data and doing the work. And it's just extraordinarily powerful stuff. Well, so when you're getting into designing pages, you're getting into what we like to do with data and testing. What are the primary things that you're looking for uh, as you're building out these pages besides the signals to the search engines that this page is material to a certain set of concepts? Nowadays, the focus is on the user experience. So in removing friction, 
you know, having the basics of the intro, you know, the intro content and key benefits, some of the competitive differentiators, we like to talk about that in the content, but we like to keep it short and compelling and, you know, all the classic stuff, you know, social proof and get some reviews in there and that kind of thing. But people overthink product and service pages, I think. It's really about, you know, what can you expect to get out of this page? What are the benefits of my product or service? What are, what are the competitive differentiators? By the way, make it easy for me to click and buy it or subscribe to it. <laughs> I mean, you know, like give if, if I'm someone who doesn't need to do research and I know what I want, I'm there, I'm on that page, I'm ready to convert. Well, let me convert at the top. Yes. You know, don't, don't make me, you know, scroll four times to get to the bottom to convert. Add a call to action. It's it's my most common advice. There you go. <laughs> Just a CTA. Add a call to action. There you go. Yeah. When you say compelling, expand on that. Is that simply doing a good job of uh, talking about your differentiators? Is there more to compelling pages? I think that's part of it. I think part of it also, too, is selling the brand. You know, I've done some work for some really amazing companies. These are people who've changed their communities. They have incredible service levels. Um, you know, and some of them put in like a, a, an amazing amount of money training their employees. And, you know, you look across their space and you see there's these guys being trained and, you know, not getting training at all. And then here's, you have all these certifications and all this education and things that this, this particular company requires. Speak to those things because I think those things are really powerful and, and they are compelling and help drive click through. It is uh, famously said by the Eisenberg brothers, it's you can't read the label when you're inside the bottle. Do you <laughs> recommend people write their own copy? Do you recommend that they find external resources that can look at it with fresh eyes? Do you have a preference? Yeah, I do. I, I like having a professional SEO build the editorial calendar using the data. And then explaining to the client, you know, here's the calendar, here's the blueprint of what needs to be produced. Let's assign who internally, what subject matter experts do you have internally? Um, on the other side of that, there's a hybrid approach where they say, okay, we have SMEs in-house, but they don't have time. So we say, okay, well, let's do this. Let us give it, give us a shot at it. Um, and then have them review and refine. So the level of efforts lower. And we find more often than not that works. Um, and they get to add things like brand voice, maybe a little more localization of the content in some instances, and some of that, that, some of that SME vision um, that comes with those KSAs they have that we don't. KSAs? The knowledge, skills, and abilities. Um, I think my next question really is, someone has executed on your program, they're doing a fantastic job. At what point do you suggest they begin investing in conversion optimization? Should it start at the beginning as you're building these pages? Should it be down the line? Is there a, a moment of maturity in which you're like, okay, you guys really need to uh, start doing some optimization and testing on your UX? Yeah, well, there's a lot of people who disagree with me on this. Um, but, you know, if you ask a CRO agency, when is the best time to start doing CRO? They'd probably tell you yesterday is the best time, right? Um, I mean, for me, in my experience, um, I find the organic channel to have so much value and, and find so much opportunity that people are leaving on the table. I just feel like it's so foundational um, to, to an organization to get organic right. Because 
you know, when you, when you execute on a campaign, 12 to 24 months of organic work, like I do a lot, we, when we deliver a hundred percent lift on organic traffic or more, and then launch CRO activity, you know, that two X increase in conversion rate from the, the CRO activity means a hell of a lot more to the client. And I also find that, you know, the material lift in the revenue provided by the organic SEO effort allows the client to increase the CRO spend and implement a much more comprehensive and impactful CRO strategy. So instead of just running a CRO audit and maybe, you know, working on the one most popular page, they can afford the full funnel, fully managed CRO work where the whole funnel's getting the, the CRO attention. And I think it just basically sets both the client, the CRO agency up for success. And, you know, by the way, you know, they can stop organic spend if they want and spend the next year doing full funnel, you know, CRO work and reallocate because budget's a thing, you know, it's a real reality, especially going into some recessionary times. It's a consideration for some folks, but um, cutting marketing budgets going into a recession is, um, is a recipe for long-term failure, I would say. <laughs> Yeah, and that's one of the beauties of uh, organic is that uh, you, your competitors can't outbid you on organic. In other words, what you invest has a long shelf life, and this strong foundation of uh, organic search has two benefits. Number one, it's laying the foundation for organic traffic. But um, what I'm also hearing in terms of your process is I'm understanding my audience better, what they need from a content standpoint. And our biggest wins generally come from changing the words and images, the, the way you present the value proposition on the page. So much more important than the color of a button or the picture that's in a hero area. Yes. And I would add one other thing, you know, it increases the footprint. So you have now have a larger footprint to work with. There's going to be product and category pages and, and things that didn't exist before that you now have an opportunity to convert on, to improve conversion on that you wouldn't have had otherwise. So I, I just, it just makes so much sense to me. I, when we want to go next level, we bring in the CRO. This question is going to sound a little self-serving. Um, what characteristics or capabilities would you be looking for from a CRO firm? Do they need to have a deep understanding of SEO? No, I, I think I, I wouldn't need them to have deep understanding of SEO. I don't think, you know, I know my, e my larger e-commerce clients, the calendar is a very big deal that drives a lot of things, the timing of when we do CRO. So I would be looking for someone who's very in touch with that. I want someone who understands that Q1 is a good time to kind of clean up any issues that we found in, over the holidays with all the increased traffic we had. Someone who understands that that's a great time to evaluate, you know, how well your site performed last year and, and to use these findings to kind of create a plan to increase, you know, conversions um, for the new year. And as someone who's brave enough too, by the way, in Q4, like Q4 peak season, everybody's too busy, you know, everyone's saying, Brian, it's too risky. We don't want to do any CRO this quarter. Just leave me alone. But I want someone who says, okay, I understand. Um, but why don't we do a bunch of our small tests? Um, at a time when you have higher traffic. So we can kind of prove out testing results more quickly than when we had these much slower times of the year, you know, in Q, Q1, Q2, Q3. The distinction I'm hearing is, uh, you know, there is the approach of, you know, we're only as good as our most recent win versus uh, we're coming in to work 
to grow this business and understand this business. Yes, yes, absolutely. For you to have the intelligence to say, here's, you know, to be, for you to be thinking about, here's when we run higher risk tasks and here's when we run the low risk tasks, you know? Well, one of the hardest things about hiring uh, an uh, SEO firm or an SEO resource or investing in that is uh, you all use the very similar language. So we're going to do the, the keyword research. We're going to do an audit, um, compare you to your competitors. We're going to find out where the gaps are. But ultimately, we end up getting giant spreadsheets full of keywords. How do you size up SEO talent and make that good choice? Well, I wish I had a dollar for every poor keyword research report I've seen um, from agencies. There's, there's these details that are missing. For example, there's certain keywords where Google only wants video content. We're dealing with a multimodal SERP now, so Google's returning more video, more images, you know, including with text and shopping and all these different features. Uh, another example is I'll find keyword opportunities that are that are strong that you don't shouldn't really build a page for it. They already have a product page, and all we need should do need to do is add a FAQ. Um, so there's these very nuanced things about analyzing the SERP and having a true deep understanding of and, and documenting that so that the client understands. My experience has been that the the more SEO intelligence I add to our site, the less fun it is to write the content. <laughs> um, but there is this question of writing for the bots versus writing for humans. Yeah, I mean, we we always we always write it for the humans. You know, take some of your own liberties to you know make it more interesting. You know, you don't have to to do an exact match of the you know the recommended title and kind of make it your own. Mm-hmm. Um, inject some of that that institutional knowledge that you have. Have some fun with the page title. Uh, expand on it or cut it short or whatever it is that makes it more real and meaningful for your user base and for that audience. Um, I just encourage them to take that opportunity just to be flexible and, and don't feel like it's rigid and you have to use these exa- this, these exact words because the machines are s- they're getting so damn good now, Brian, um, that we don't have to play that way anymore. We'll keep it natural and keep it focused on user experience, and that's how we win. And if people are coming back, if people are linking to you, Google's picking up or the search engines are picking up on all of that. That's right. You got it. Anything that you want to leave the listeners with from our conversation? Spend the time and money on comprehensive keyword research and analysis and and developing a data-driven blueprint to inform not just your site's information architecture, but also your content production efforts. It is very valuable intelligence. Um, And we've grown so many SMBs and larger companies in very material ways just by doing that in a, a very intentional, comprehensive way. So I, I would encourage everybody to do that, whatever type of business you're in. And I think that's one area where our value propositions overlap because yes, you can hire us to find more revenue from the traffic you're already getting, but the real value of what we do is to understand your audience, to understand your visitors, to understand the people that are trying to solve the problem that your product or service solves. And that was my big takeaway was the keyword research is about you understanding your visitors, not just about what's our content calendar going to be. And I think that's, that's an important distinction. 
Yes. And it teaches us much more than people anticipate about those users. Well, tell us where we go to learn more about you. Oh, jfisher.co. That's jfisher.co is my site. Well, I appreciate you spending time with me today. Well, Brian, I'm a huge fan of your work and I really appreciate you inviting me on and and letting me uh, spend a little bit of time with you. Thank you. Thank you for joining me this week. Now here's my ask to you. Head on over to intendedpodcast.com to share your frustrations, share your experiments, and share your ideas. It's only by going through these unintended consequences that we find ourselves understanding how we can get the intended consequences that we want. And with that, I'm Brian Massey. Subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Six stars only.